listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, friends. Welcome to The Corbett Report. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your edition of the monthly Questions for Corbett series, this time for April of 2016. We are here in the new environs of The Corbett Report, purpose-built office, all to all to myself to use as I see fit. So let's experiment with a different setup today anyway. Uh, it's still under construction, so I'm sure we can still play with it a little bit. But today we have an extra special treat, because it's not just questions for Corbett, it's questions for Corbett as read by Brock West. Hey! Hello, hello, Brock. my friend. Can you believe Brock is here once again? This is the fourth time the in fourth, five years? Fourth time in five years. Are you sick of me yet? Not yet. Okay. <laughs> I'll keep you updated. Please do. Please do. Let me know when I've outstayed my welcome here. <laughs> All right. So instead of me doing the intro spiel, as I do every single time, about how to contact me with your questions for Questions for Corbett, I'll let Brock do it. Thank you. Thank you. Just like most of the legwork these days, <laughs> I, uh, the tedious stuff you uh, are throwing my way, but I'm, I'm more than happy to obviously be here in the new environment of the Core Report Studios. And yes, for all the subscribers out there, they, they get... First, first pick of the questions, obviously from the previous episode of QFC, which was uh, twenty-eight. Twenty-eight. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Um, for those who aren't subscribers, you can also go to the contact form on CobbleReport.com and either leave your email and message there, and also use the SpeakPipe application to leave a audio question for James. Um, then, of course, via the social medias, Twitter mainly at uh, CorbettReport hashtag QFC. And anything else? I think that's... And uh, video questions. Ah, of, course, of course, yes. If you want to uh, post them to any video sharing site and let me know that they're there, and I'll uh, include them in the mix. Speaking of which, um, before we get into the questions this time, I want to start with a response uh, that I thought was worth sharing with you guys to something we were talking about in the last QFC, where we were talking about the who's going to build the roads. How can private roads possibly work? Because some evil capitalist is going to come along and build a private road and then charge people a million dollars to use it. Um, there's an interesting response that I got from, uh, via email from Stephen, so I thought I'd just share it with you guys. He said, I think we can return the question, who's going to build the roads? Who's going to build the stairs? If we would, if it would be so problematic having private streets and cities, we should probably take it to the next level. Make all the stairs in all the apartments in big cities public, so we can assure that landlords don't charge start charging money for getting into your apartment. Right? What if some landlord starts charging huge prices for using the stairs? You would be locked into your apartment. We certainly want, wouldn't want that to happen. For obvious reasons, this never occurs. Hmm. So, so there is certainly an argument to be made that private streets could work just fine. Actually, I spent most of my childhood on a private street. street. When I was around 10 years old, my neighborhood decided that they wanted to have a street built to reach the back of their yards, so every house could build a garage in the back. One person didn't have the money for it, but still gave a piece of his garden to make the project happen with the deal that if he ever sold the house and the next person wanted to join the project, that person would have to chip in but could still join. The project still made sense to the one giving away his land, as he knew the value of his property would still be higher with the possibility of having a a garage in the back. All voluntary. You can actually have a look at the street on Google Maps. It's the L-shaped to dead-end street on the right. As you can see, no street name. Maybe Piatto Thomas de Lorenzo could be a good name. And there's a link there, so you can go check it out on Google Maps if you're interested. Uh, Interesting little comment, and I think, yeah, uh, it can happen. It has actually happened in real life that private streets have been built in the past. They do work, so it's not a theoretical thing. Anyway, um, let's go to the mailbag. 
Absolutely. We have our first, our second question in from Bruno. Uh, and he writes, uh, the corporate report reaches my eyes and ears in a very professional way. The contents are always very well done and produced. As you have commented over the years, you have no specific training in journalism, and I would assume also in multimedia content creation. So my question is, do you do all of this by yourself, including the video editing and the visual design creation, or do you have someone else helping you out? Where have you learned all this, and are you a self-taught multimedia designer? James? Yes, well, you are 100% right. I have no training in any of this. I taught it all to myself over the internet, and as you can see, if you've been listening to or watching or reading my report for the last nine years now, you will know that I've progressed in terms of what I'm able to do. Uh, I still have a lot more to go, but I'm still learning. And now I have help. Brock! Yes, you do, and you the uh, the the master has taught the apprentice, and <laughs> the apprentice has surpassed the master. I, uh, really. maybe, maybe not, maybe, but anyway, we're uh, we're constantly trying to improve. And for me, myself being in charge of ninety nine percent of the um, video content creation, now I constantly try and do something, learn something new every day, and and con- consistently improve to make the visual experience at the very least more enjoyable and more engaging for the for the viewer out there. Um, so yeah, James, you taught me all you know. I, of course, used the wonderful resource known as the internet to learn more things, and I've done a couple of little short courses in a capital city in Queensland from where I'm from. So that's that's basically it, and it's just like everything, learn by doing, trial by error. I constantly still make mistakes. You make mistakes. We all do. Um, yeah, and we use, as you'll see here in the background, um, Premiere Pro, Adobe. I'll leave what I think of Adobe products right there, <laughs> but it, for, you know, it, it does the job. And um, hopefully, in the next podcast entry that we are starting to starting to ratchet we're up here, things we're, we're getting things ready. together. Um, you will see uh, a, an improvement, even even more so on the on the big oil documentary. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, and the big oil documentary is already better than anything I put together myself. So I'm very glad to have uh, Brock with me. And able to do this, again, thanks to the subscribers out there that make the entire website possible, including having Brock in as the video editor. And here he is in Japan for two weeks here in my city. Yep. Okay. Yep. All right. So we got him here for a couple weeks. Yep. And hopefully we'll put together a few different reports. More Absolutely. on that a little bit later. Um, anyway, that's the simple answer. Yes, it's self-taught. You can do it, too. If I can do it, you can do it. Trust me. So uh, I hope more people do do it. Absolutely. Uh, next question from, comes from Home Remedy Supply. Um, in the past, the mainstream media was mentioning the classified 28 pages about 9-11. However, currently there does not seem to be many headlines about the 28 pages. In light of the masterpiece How Big Oil Conquered the World, along with the very recent drop in oil prices and Saudi pumping to gain market share, do you think that there is a connection in the scheme of things? And this relates to a mailbag question from Stoke. Yes, it does. Uh, if the 28 pages confirm the Bush administration cover-up of Intel on 9-11, what would be the consequences for Bush, Cheney, and Rumsfeld, Rumsfeld etc.? All right. Okay, two questions about the 28 pages. Um, I'm sure everyone knows about the 28 pages by now. Basically, with the congressional investigation into 9-11, not the 9-11 commission, but the House and Senate Intelligence Committees, uh, came out with a report, and of course there were 28 pages that were censored from the report and have been since the beginning. And I've talked about this before, I think on QFC, I've talked about it in some other things I've done uh, in the past, where basically it's, we already know what's in it. We already know it's go- it t- talks about foreign involvement, and it's going to talk about Saudi involvement uh, and Saudi help in some way to the 9-11 uh, events. So we know what's in there, and I, again, as I say, I remember watching the reports on this report when it first came out, I think 2002, and the 
28 classified pages, and even then they were talking about this is about foreign powers and it's about Saudi Arabia. Every, it's an open secret what's, what's in there. I guess only the detail details are um, up for question. But, hey, who's promoting this 28 pages as, you know, the, the hidden mystery of 9-11? It's Senator Bob Graham and other people who are not on your side. These are not 9-11 truth advocates. Uh, these are establishment people to the core who are promoting this as, the, you know, the hidden secret. It is a booby trap that's been there since the beginning. It is, as Kevin Ryan brilliantly put it in an eye-opener report we did on the subject, a get-into-Saudi-Arabia-free card. As in, whenever they need to, they can pull the 28 pages out of their hat and, hey, look at this, look at what the Saudis did. They can turn the Saudi alliance into some sort of Saudi enemy overnight. It's sitting there as a booby trap. It's waiting to be used. It's a political tool. And that's what it's about. It's not going to be, look, 9-11 was an inside job, and look at all the inside help. It's going to be, look at those Saudis, and we got to get Saudi Arabia. So I think there's obviously a booby trap in there. Let's just cut to a section of that eye-opener report that I did a few years ago on this subject, including uh, Kevin Ryan. It has been an open secret for some time that the 28 redacted pages of the Joint Congressional Inquiry into 9-11, referring to foreign government involvement in the attacks, in fact refers to Saudi Arabia. But this pattern, according to 9-11 researchers like Kevin Ryan, is in fact a false trail, carefully constructed as a get-into-Saudi-Arabia-free card for America to use at a convenient time whenever the official story of 9-11, as represented in the 9-11 Commission report, begins to fall apart under the weight of its own lies and obfuscations, or whenever the establishment deems it necessary to motivate the American people into yet another war of conquest for the purpose of securing the largest proven oil reserves in the world. Earlier this week, I had the chance to talk to Kevin Ryan about the suggestion that the Saudis were the true masterminds of 9-11, and what purpose this carefully constructed trail of evidence serves. I've always uh, kind of seen the the 28 pages that were redacted from the Joint Congressional Inquiry, as well as a lot of what the 9-11 Commission says, with the 15 of the 19 hijackers being from Saudi Arabia and so forth. I've seen that as kind of been a being a dormant, um, what I call a get-into-Saudi-Arabia-free card. You know, at some point, uh, people will recognize that really the, the people who uh, ostensibly attacked us on 9-11 um, a case could be made that they, that was the Saudi Arabian uh, government or Saudi Arabian people, which I wouldn't say, of course. There's a clear disconnect between the Saudi Arabian royal family and uh, the people of Saudi Arabia. Uh, they're not very representative of their people at all, but they are representative of Western governments and Western powers and, and sort of deep state operatives like the Bush family uh, and their their colleagues. Um, so I think that that yeah, you could call it as a as a, a limited hangout to some extent, but I think it's also kind of a diversion, and it might be a good idea for people to learn as much as they can about who's really been 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 behind the Saudi Arabian government and supported them for the last uh, many decades. All right. Once again, I do suggest you check out the full report. Uh, a lot more detail there, but I think that's the that's the long and short of it. Is that yes? I mean, Saudi Arabia did have a role, but who has a role with Saudi Arabia? So that's uh, you can check the show notes for the link to that eye opener report. Let's go to the next question, which comes from du- uh, subscriber Double K three two one. It's been fifty plus years since the JFK assassination. The official story is that it was done by a lone nut. Yet five decades later, there are thousands of documents that are still sealed. 
Even if I were to buy the official story, and I don't, this piece of it makes it makes absolutely zero sense and thus feels very damning to the powers that be or shouldn't be. I have a theory that the powers that be would never let a candidate who get elected who would reopen the JFK investigation. In fact, I almost view it as a sort of measuring stick of whether the powers that shouldn't be are still in control. And unfortunately, they are. Is this too, a simplistic, is this too simplistic of a view in your opinion, James, or is double K3321 onto something? Um, yeah, in the current political climate, but it is becoming less so. I actually think that at a certain point, they will let at least some of those cats out of the bag, if for no other reason than everyone involved with it is dead. And everyone who was alive at the time is old and senile and won't remember their their name, let alone the uh, the assassination of the president. I mean, at that point, it becomes politically safe to do so because as long as there's living memory of it, I think there will be people who would be incensed and upset by the idea that there was some kind of, you know, other than what we've been told for the last 50 years, something going on. Um, there would be people who would be deeply upset by that and might actually, I mean, I, what are they going to do at this point? But still... But we're getting to that spot, that spot now, 50-plus years later, 53 this year. Um, we're getting to the point where they could let some of the cats out of the bag. I, I mean, I don't... At this point, I'm not even sure anyone will ever be able to, even within with the, you know, the internal documents of the CIA or whatever, be able to say who pulled the trigger and all of that. I think there's so many different traps that have been laid for researchers and false leads and and so much confusion that's been sown that at this point I'm not sure that's ever going to be completely decidable and pinpointable. But I think we all know the main players that would be involved and the main motivations for it. And there may be some some things in the, the archives that they will release at some point when they're due to be declassified in 2027 or whatever it is at this point. Um, eventually they will, I think, let some of those records out. And at that point, it's only because it doesn't matter anymore. People have the, the, the idea that it, a certain, when you go a certain amount of time back, it's, it's like, that's, that's a, that's a former generation. That's what people did in the past. But our leaders today would never do that. So as long as they can count on that reaction, I don't think JFK will be that politically explosive. And, 50 years from now, who knows? Maybe 9-11 will be the same spot. Yeah, I think, I think that point you make is, is kind of makes sense when you think of the USS Maine and the Spanish-American War. Everyone, uh, that, first of all, it's overseas. It was, over, it was over in Cuba and the Philippines, so it's far away. But, you know, it's kind of been accepted now that it was, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it's nowhere near as loaded as JFK right, right. is, was, yeah. and, and still will be for the, right. for, the, for the foreseeable future. So, yeah, I kind of agree that... It, I think even even when yeah, like you said, even when it is whatever files are unsealed, mm-hmm. there have been so much mud. The, the waters are so muddy yeah. with JFK now, and yeah. I think that's really um, something that the alternative media and independent media needs to be conscious of going into the future of creating a credible, easy to understand narrative or right. um, timeline yeah. of, of these kind of events. What yeah. you can hammer down, right? I, of course, yeah, right, right, of course, right. and of course, it's all. We're all subject to what we can have, what, what we don't, what we do and don't have access to. Yeah. So that makes our makes our job that much more difficult. But mm-hmm. yeah. unfortunately, if your job is just to sow confusion, it's a lot easier than finding absolutely finding the truth through the confusion. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, let's move on. We've got a question in from Marcus O'Hilius uh, regarding the nine eleven conspiracy debate. Yes, really, from uh, Freedom Main Radio. Um, would you be interested in discussing nine eleven with Stefan Molyneux? And if he refuses, would you be interested in making another gatekeeper video? 
If so, I would be more than happy to help dig through his video and provide specifics. Right. I'm happy to discuss or debate uh, 9/11 with Molyneux if he so desires. But from what I saw of that video itself, it seems that he has no real interest in 9/11 at this point because of the argument that he makes. So you know, it doesn't matter. We we already know so many things about you know lying in the war of Iraq and stuff that it doesn't matter for the purposes of the war on terror, which I think is a ridiculous argument. But I don't. At the end of the day, I don't care so much about what Stefan Molyneux thinks or doesn't think or knows or doesn't know or believes or doesn't believe about 9-11. I care about what happened on 9-11. So um, that's the main point. Uh, I would be happy to debate him, but in a structured way, in a debate, in an actual debate, with an actual topic or a question that is being debated and a moderator, so that it's not just some rambling gish gallop kind of let's make a bunch of metaphors and ask 17 unrelated questions to try to get nowhere and muddy up the waters of the conversation. If it's an actual debate, that would be fine. Or I'd be happy to moderate a debate between Stefan Molyneux and Kevin Ryan or someone like that. That would be, <laughs> that would be interesting. That would be fascinating. But again, I don't care what Stefan Molyneux thinks because I care about what happened on 9-11. That's the, the key. And uh, clearly Stefan has not done a lot of research on this as he admitted repeatedly throughout that interview. He doesn't know the research. He, he doesn't know what documents exist about insider trading. He's admitted all of that. So, you know, if he's spent, what, 15 years not caring? I don't, I mean, why, why debate him? What, you know, what's the point of that? Um, and that's, that's kind of the bigger point about these gatekeeper videos. I know a few years ago I made the gatekeeper video about Chomsky, and I still stand by it, but I think it's a million, a billion, a trillion times better to make a 9-11 trillions documentary than it is to spend my time trying to police what other people believe or don't believe or say or don't say about 9-11. Who cares? Who cares what anyone says about 9-11? If you care about the facts, if you care about the truth, if you care about the documents, if you care about the information, then let's put our resources, our time, our energy into spreading that information, uncovering it, spreading it, talking about it, rather than trying to police what other people believe or don't believe. And that's the thing. There are millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people who believe the 9-11 official story. I'm not going to sit and debate every single one of them. I'm going to spend my time in the best way possible, and I think that's making a 9-11 trillions documentary or something like that. So that's where my heart is. That's what I'm interested in doing. Well said. Um, I would say, and also that um, keeping just keeping the conversation going about it, um, about 9-11 about too, keeping it in, in, in at the front of people's minds because time, time does unfortunately fade fade these kind of events and they and they do tend to in they tend to fade into into into, uh, into insignificance right, right. yeah if if we don't keep right and it's, i don't feel with 911 trillion is that we were repeating it you, you weren't repeating yourself these are all you know there's constantly new information coming to light and, and new angles and new uh, revelations that we need to explore and and and, and, and put into the, put into the public consciousness right, exactly think, yeah and stop getting it centered on the same debates with the same people about the same topics yeah. over and over and over exactly. and over. Yeah. Um, our next question comes from Jeff3. We know that credit rating agencies can be gained because of their issuer pay structure, in which entities pay to have their securities rated, which becomes a conflict for, for obvious reasons, and it serves the rating agency to give out good ratings to their paying customers. Do you suppose this conflict could be gained in reverse? Yes, I do. And... Um, there's a lot to say about that, but instead of saying it here, I will just refer you to an article that I wrote, uh, the, rating, uh, the Ratings Game, Rating Agencies as Weapons of Economic Warfare, that I wrote for the International Forecaster a couple of years ago, when Russia was 
talking about putting together their own ratings agency as kind of a counteract to the Moody's and S&P that control so much of the world ratings game. Um, Russia at that time was talking about constructing theirs, and I believe that's now online. I think they are now actually starting to uh, to do their own ratings, so I'm going to uh, hopefully write more about that in the future as well. Okay. Uh, next question comes again from Double K321. If I understand the Rothschild family narrative correctly, it seems as if they are able to just use their enormous wealth to influence government. It's interesting to me that government didn't just threaten to take their wealth via some type of taxation slash regulation. In other words, it seems as if money won out over the government instead of vice versa. The article below talks about the reverse, I'm sorry, about how the reverse seems to happen in China. I'm interested to hear your opinion about why money wins over government in some cases, but not others. And does the idea that government might steal from rich families almost force them to take measures to try to protect their wealth, even if even via, even if via e- evil schemes. So Double K is referring there to some of the crackdowns we've seen in China on some of the, the billionaires and political insiders and things, which, um, mm-hmm. take it for what it is, which is uh, Xi Jinping trying to get rid of certain cliques and factions within the Chinese power structure that he doesn't like, I think is what that's ultimately about, and, and throwing some some people to the wolves, you know, uh, we can sacrifice this this person or that person. So I don't think there's a big crackdown going on in China. Um, but just generally speaking about, yes, I, I think obviously the big, the big money, the real big money knows a bajillion ways to hide their money all around the world, and they do so freely and willingly. And then when they expose a little bit, like with the Panama Papers, they, they expose this one law firm, and, uh, and that creates the cry for, well, we've got to crack down on people all the more, because all of these people, these politically collect- connected billionaire insiders, were gaming the system. Now the system needs more uh, power to c- crack down on these people who are running the system. Again, I mean, the same people who are doing it are going to get away with it even more so. So uh, this is exactly what I'm writing about in this weekend's uh, subscriber newsletter, the ed- uh, International Forecaster Editorial, is going to be about how... The big money, the real money, the billionaire trillionaires hide their money around the world, and it's uh, not just through a law firm in Panama. Yeah, I mean, particularly with China, I think there's already they've had a quite a severe crackdown on any kind of information or, or um, information getting it to the public right. about it. So, I mean, the the Chinese political system is a giant, giant iceberg, and and the, even the Panama Papers, I think, really only scratched the, the top, the very top yeah. echelon of that. Uh, moving on, this question comes in from J.Z. Uh, there are obvious, obviously there are historic mainstream accepted examples of hoaxes and staged events like the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Are there any other events that you lean towards being staged, a hoax, or that even crisis actors have been used for such events? Uh, yes, there are several that we've talked about uh, on the program in the past. Um, but I would say with the Gulf of Tonkin, I don't think staged is the right word. I don't think hoax is the right word. I think we have to look at specifically what did happen there, which was the Maddox um, was attacked on August 2nd by three North Vietnamese torpedo boats, and it did engage them. Uh, well, was attacked, did attack them. There, I mean, there's still no definitive answer about what happened. But anyway, it did engage three North, North Vietnamese torpedo boats on August 2nd, and then on the 4th, this ship had uh, radar, sonar, and radio signals that it was picking up that they th- interpreted as being shipped, uh, uh, boats, North Vietnamese boats, that they they did evasive maneuvers and they sh- fired at those radar blips for hours and uh, they couldn't shake them. 
eventually the the navy reported that they sank two or three ships and um that became part of the whole story although no wreckage was ever found we now know because there is actual documentary evidence that's finally come out again almost you know whatever 40 years later back in 2004 uh, there was a, a national security archives uh release of a booklet that included some some of the um, intercepts, uh, not intercepts, but the, like, the conversations between McNamara and Johnson and things like that that people didn't have access to before. And in 2005, there were even more records released from the NSA, the National Security Agency, the NSA, NSA, that didn't exist at the time, right? Supposedly, if, you know, officially. Um, again, even more information. We now know that the captain himself didn't know if he did or did not engage any ships, but he thought maybe there was nothing there. So that evening, by that evening, after the event occurred, he didn't know, he was thinking it probably didn't happen. And we know that McNamara, at least in the recorded conversations between McNamara and Johnson, again, they didn't know, but they decided to use it as, you know, the pretext for what became the Vietnam War officially, really. So... So again, I don't know if staged or hoax is the right sense because it's not like they paid actors or they, you know, the the the, the captain was pretending to. I mean, he genuinely believed they might have perhaps engaged something. He thought they were doing evasive maneuvers against these blips, which may or may not have been a boat. They decided after the fact to promote it as an attack to justify the sending in um, to the beginning of the Vietnam War. So anyway, that's kind of a different thing, and I think a lot of these events are like that. They're not usually so clear cut. As, as as saying staged or hoax might say. But there are incidents of that, and ones that we've talked about before. A few weeks ago, a couple months ago, on New World Next Week, me and James talked about um, actors, paid actors uh, for political campaigns. And there's the example of the, uh, the rally where Trump announced his presidential bid. Um, was there, there was a casting agency, Extra Mile Casting, that was paying 50 bucks a pop for people to go there, wear shirts, hold signs. And we know this because we actually know one of the actors by name, Dom Deleguido, I think was his name. Let me actually get that correctly. I haven't noted down here. Yeah. Um, Del Giaccio. Mm-hmm. yes. And we have his Instagram where he posted that. And it's an actor. It's a, he was a paid actor. He is an actor. Um, so we know that there are paid people in campaigns like that to, you know, swell the, swell the ranks of the, uh, the, the minions who adore these political candidates when they arrive on the scene. Uh, Hillary's done the same thing. Um, so we've talked about that. We talked about uh, the, uh, I did that interview with Lionel about media fakery, fakery, where we talked about that scene that was shot on a set that was meant to look like Syria, and it was meant to be this dramatic moment of this little boy going to save this little girl from sniper fire. And uh, it's, it's just this dramatic, whatever, 10, 15 seconds of uh, video um, that it, really, I mean, it was kind of a test. Will the media pick up on it and report it? And they did. And they said, yes, this is from Syria. And look, look at this dramatic image. And it got lots of press and headlines. And then it came out, oh, no, it was it was fake. It was, a, it was actors on a, on a stage. And yeah, so um, so that we talked about that. And at some length, you can go and listen to that conversation. That whole conversation was about the media fakery. I've done uh, GRTV reports about how media lies and fakery and manipulations are used to get us into war time and 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 time again. Um, so definitely we talked about that. And either James or myself or both of us at some point on New World Next Week or maybe it was on Morning Monarchy, maybe it was in the subscriber newsletter, we've talked uh, about that recent story that came up about the live 
uh, video morphing technology they have where they can take someone's video and actually make their mouth move in ways that the actual person is not moving in live real time. I mean, it's, yeah, anyway, Brock will throw some of that up on the screen while I'm talking so you can see it. Uh, It's craziness. So that stuff does exist. Staging and hoaxing in various ways and examples does exist. But I think the most important part for me is what I can prove rather than what is what I see as a worrying trend towards using logically fallacious uh, arguments uh, that are appeals, uh, arguments from incredulity that then end with a non sequitur, which is basically saying, I don't believe that such and such could be like that, like what we see on the screen. Therefore, well, the, the, the logically fallacious argument is, I don't believe that could happen. Therefore, it didn't happen. That's a logically fallacious argument. It may or may not be correct, but it's logically fallacious. But it's not even that. It's not, I don't believe that could happen there uh, that way, therefore it's uh, that, that scene is fake. It's, I don't believe it could happen that way, therefore nothing happened. Which is a whole different, that's a non-sequitur leap into itself that uh, we can now talk about, you know, the entire event based on the fact that this one image doesn't look right for this or that reason. I think there's a huge huge logical leaps that are being made in a lot of these claims. And that's what worries me because, again, it can be very easily gamed and manipulated and used as the new meme to uh, to get people off into the directions that ultimately don't matter because you're missing the bigger geopolitical uh, scene of what's going on. And so um, I think I understand why that's appealing because it's very easy to look at a little bit of video and say, that doesn't look right, therefore nothing happened, rather than looking at the connections and of who's behind this and, and the players and the geopolitical ramifications, that's a lot of work. So I, I realize just looking at video and saying that doesn't look right is a lot easier. So anyway, yes, I mean, staging and manipulation and hoaxes happen all the time, but I just like to be careful about what, what I can prove and what I can demonstrate and what I can. Absolutely. Um, and speaking of stage events that help shape people's perceptions, let's open up the mailbag. And we'll take this question from David. The day after 9-11, our servile Western media outlets continually showed Palestinian people dancing and rejoicing in the streets as if they were celebrating the events that took place that horrible day. Was that footage taken completely out of context? It seemed to me as if our media was trying to frame a specific narrative in order to show how, how barbaric and criminal the Palestinians can be, thus giving the Israeli army all the more reason to continue the ethnic, the ethnic cleansing. Right. Yes. Yes. Uh, the short answer is yes. The footage had nothing to do with Palestinians celebrating 9-11. Um, we can get a couple of handles on this. One from History Commons. The excellent History Commons has uh, this entry on that specifically. Television news coverage on 9-11 repeatedly shows images of Palestinians rejoicing over the 9-11 attack. According to Mark Crispin Miller, a professor of media studies at New York University who investigated the issue, the footage was filmed during the funeral of nine people killed the day before by Israeli authorities. He said to show it without explaining the background and to show it over and over again is to make propaganda for the war machine and is irresponsible. So that's one part of that footage that they were showing over and over and over. The other part was, uh, well, we can pick this up again. There's an excellent overview article that I'll link to in the show notes um, that has a lot of different links. One of the links is to a book called The Fraud of the Fraud, Have You, Have you Been Taken for a Ride?, and that book notes, uh, Annette Kruger-Spita of ARD, German Public Broadcasting TV magazine Panorama, 
stated that inspection of the unreleased complete tape of that footage shows the street around the celebration was quiet, and a man in a white t-shirt is noticeable for inciting the children and is fetching new people again and again. The woman who is remembered for her cheering, whose name is Noel Abdel Fattah, later stated she was offered cake if she celebrated on camera. At the time, she was unaware of the 9-11 attacks and said she was frightened when she saw the pictures on television of how she was being portrayed to the world. And then that book goes on to reproduce a, a Spiegel article, which I, I'll, I haven't checked. I think it's available still online, but I'll, I'll, if it is, I'll throw it in the show notes. Anyway, it's reproduced in that book um, that, that's talking about that ARD investigation in more detail. And the other part of this is there was, at the same time as this was being debated, there was a canard thrown out by some Brazilian researcher who said, no, this is footage that was taken 10 years ago. They, they were saying it was taken in 91 but that that timeline didn't add up, and some people said no, it was 1990, and other people saying no, it was 1993. Uh, that that is a blind alley. No, this was not taken in the 1990s. It was from around that time, but it had nothing to do with the celebration of 9/11. And that's the uh, again, yeah, it's a perfect example of how media manipulation gets people ready for war. And uh, that's another example of how 9-11, war on terror, war in the Middle East, all go together in this big package. And 9-11 truth is the, the, the well, I don't know, how, what's the best metaphor? It's the bow that if we unwrap, the whole present comes out, which is the present of the truth, which unlocks all of the, the deep the propaganda and crap that's been built around this for so long. Perhaps those, uh, those so-called Palestinians were hired by the um, Extra Mile Casting Agency. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Um, all right, let's take our first video question. This one coming in from Flying Axe Blade. In moral, ethics, and economics. In contrast, the Oxford Cambridge scholar and best-selling author C.S. Lewis did not suffer such delusions. Despite the gigantic and deeply disturbing events that he lived through, including the rise of total war, the total state, and genocides that developed during his lifetime. Lewis's aversion to government was clearly revealed in 1951 when Winston Churchill, within weeks after he regained office as Prime Minister of Great Britain, wrote to Lewis, offering to have him knighted as commander of the Order of the British Empire. Lewis, however, flatly denied the offer because he, unlike the progressives, was never interested in politics and was deeply skeptical of government power and politicians. He expressed this further in the first two lines of his poem entitled Lines During a General Election. Quote, their threats are terrible enough, but we could bear all that. It is their promises that bring despair, unquote. Lewis had actually held this view for many years. In 1940, he had written a letter to his brother Warren stating, could we start a stagnation party? which in general elections would boast that during its term of office, no event of the least importance had taken place, unquote. He further noted, quote, I was by nature against government, unquote. Okay, so... This is in direct contrast... My question for James Corbett, thank you very much for all that you do. I really cannot express uh, how much I rely on you for news to keep me informed is does that mean that C.S. Lewis 
if he were such an anarchist as what he's claiming there, because I would think someone for a stagnation party would quite qualify <laughs> as an anarchist, should he not be then high on the reading list for anarchists? Because he's not just the Narnia author, and he's not just the author of mere Christianity. He is the author of many political books. Thank you very much. Cherish his new love. Zoe. Zoe. Zoe, say goodbye, James. Okay, well, she waggles. Be well. Thank you for the question, Flying Axe Blade, and say hi to Zoe for me, or say goodbye to Zoe for me. All right, um, the question is, C.S. Lewis, should he be on the anarchist reading list? Well, it is an interesting, you have an interesting quote in there, and some interesting uh, anecdotes. I will confess that the only thing I ever read of C.S. Lewis is Surprised by Joy, and uh, I was surprised by how not great it was, <laughs> despite the fact it came recommended by some people. Uh, eh, didn't do much for me, but... Um, I will at least look into whether there are some works that, of his that should be read, and if you or anyone else out there knows of any specifically that I should read first, pass them along, I'll add them to the reading list. But of course, this is the very reason for the existence of the Well-Read Anarchist series, isn't it? This is what it's about, trying to find the anarchist reading list, as it were, and I have lots of ideas, don't worry, I'm going to be uh, featuring Kropotkin and Spooner and Goldman and Tucker and... Uh, Rothbard and all sorts of people I've already got on the list, but if you have an idea and you want to see this person, this anarchist writer's ideas uh, in that series or in some other work I do, then again, pass it along. That's what it's about. Pass along the ideas. And uh, if you're a Corporate Report member, pass along the ideas in the comment section. and Everyone can join in. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, well, we'll develop an anarchist reading list and we'll continue working on the well-read anarchist series. This is the guy that was doing the audio editing for the, uh, the, the inaugural edition of the well-read anarchist series and it's tedious work, isn't it? It's surprisingly not as enjoyable as the video editing thought of it, but, yeah. it, but it's still part of it and you have to, uh, yeah, you just have to suck it up and, uh, yeah. just get through it. And we will, we will definitely continue that series. So, all right, thank you again for the question. All right, let's go back to the mailbag with a question from Adrian. I've been currently listening to podcasts and other miscellaneous news regarding the Brussels attack. It seems every time I hear the word Belgium, my mind can't help but think, hey, isn't Belgium the country that was credited with picking up the slack in regards to purchasing the $85 billion worth in treasuries when the Federal Reserve announced the ending of the QE program? Do you think there is any correlation? Are you aware of any reputable investigative work that's been done in regards to Belgium making those purchases? Uh, yes, I do. For those who don't remember, it was around the end of 2013 we started to see the treasury holdings of Belgium, of all places, start to skyrocket. Why? What, what was going on there? Uh, that was first picked up and was talked about in an article that was in the spring of 2014 by Hang the Banker. I'll put in a, a, a link to that so you can go read about it. And it was the big mystery. Even the Wall Street Journal and others wrote about it. The big mystery. Why is Belgian treasury holdings suddenly spiking? Um, in the summer of 2014, Bloomberg, of all places, had a report exposing the fact that it was China. And they asserted it pretty, pretty assertively that it was China that was uh, fronting basically through Belgium, uh, through Euroclear, uh, basically a, a, a clearinghouse that works in Belgium. So it was, it looked like it was coming from Belgium, but it was actually China. And that was more, pretty much confirmed, not 
not from the Chinese government, obviously confirmed, but confirmed, confirmed. By uh, Zero Hedge in 2015, they had a post up that went through the data and showed a plot of uh, of Chinese and Belgian treasury holdings plotted against Chinese uh, Forex reserves. And it's a very similar curve. Too similar to be coincidence, I think. So, yes, it was China. And uh, I'll throw in a links to all of those things so you can go and uh, read all, all about that. Once again, the Chinese financial iceberg is much, much deeper than than uh, is is generally perceived in the public. Yep. Yep. All right, we've got a question, uh, subscriber question from Peter. I've read that Osama bin Laden is still alive, according to Edward Snowden. Can you cover this in a report? I can. Let's get it out of the way right now. Osama bin Laden is not alive, and uh, and Edward Snowden did not say that. So there you go. Uh, yes, I have noticed in the last couple of years, I think James and I have talked about a New World next week, and uh, we've discussed it elsewhere. I did an entire show on the the onion and the the idea of satire news and what that means but there have been a bunch of sites in the last few years that have come along that are not even satire not even trying to be funny like the onion that are just fake story news generators and sometimes some of the stories sound i guess plausible enough if you just read the headline and don't know the specifics and don't bother clicking through and don't bother looking through the rest of the site to find out if it's a fake news site. I guess it's plausible enough that people will see the headline and believe it. And uh, I, I've certainly seen a lot of Snowden headlines generated that way. Snowden says aliens exist. Snowden says Osama bin Laden is alive. Snowden says Santa Claus he lives with the T- Easter Bunny in Tijuana. I don't know. Uh, there's, all, there's all those types of stories. And unfortunately, yeah, they're making the rounds and getting repeated as if there's something behind them. Again, you've got to not just read the headline, look through the story. Trust me, if some Snowden document came out, Osama bin Laden is live, you would hear about it in more than just one site. You know, it would be all over the news. So you have to triangulate these types of things and find out if there's anything to them. Are they showing you a document? Is there any reporting that verifies this? Can you can you verify this independently? If not, it's probably fake. In this case, it's fake. Snowden never said that. It's just a hoax uh, hoax website. Okay, Uh, next question coming in from Randall. James, I appreciate your work. Your advice to undermine the order is through non-participation through alternative systems. This is great counsel. If a person or persons wants to mount a protest more directly to challenge the powers that shouldn't be, what would be the best target for a start? I'm inclined to think that the Fed is the fundamental cause of the most evil, evil of the evil empires and war profiteering in the USA, which spreads so much misery throughout the world. I feel that Boots on the ground is the only method to get attention to the malevolent forces currently facing us all. I would be interested in your opinion as to the first priority of a grassroots movement. And uh, this question, in a sense, is uh, answered by the next question from Roberto. I want to start a group of people in my community in order to start a, a P2P economy movement. I want the group to concentrate on an exchange of ideals and ways to improve our community. I know that you started episode 303 and provided several solutions. Is there any other advice that you could give me? Yes. Well, first of all, thank you for the questions, uh, Randall, Roberto. Uh, I appreciate them. Randall, I think you're on the right track. I think the Fed and the central banks and the money, the monetary system is the base of so much of, of what goes on and the power through which they operate. If you have control of the money supply, it matters not who writes the laws. So that is the thing that we have to be striking at. But the question is, how do you st- strike at it? Do you mount some sort of audit the Fed movement or something. No, clearly that's not, I think, the the way that's going to really generate real results. So I think what Roberto is talking about is the real way that we can start moving off of their system altogether so that we can start creating, constructing the real alternative. 
through founding community organizations and P2P economic exchanges or economic exchanges of some sort that are not based on that Fed-dominated fiat system. Now, that's... That's the interesting part about this, because a lot of people... I, I've had a few emails recently since I d- did that solutions video on P2P ideas, and we did a little bit of an open source investigation on that, that I'll throw the link in the show notes. I've had a few emails from people saying, I want to start a P2P idea like this or like that, so people can come together and whatever. But uh, how do I go about doing that? It's a million times more important. Put the cart before the horse. Don't put the cart before the <laughs> Whatever that saying is. But you have to have the community... In, in some way before you start the P2P side of it. The P2P side of it is just the, the technology to bring a community together. But the community should preferably already be there. There already has to be a network of some sort that will support what it is that the technology enables, which is just communication between people. So the community organization side of it has to, I think, be the first part of it. And then you can start some sort of P2P thing, which will connect people in your local area first, probably, and then you can expand it out once you've got that base of users. So I think that's the way to go about doing this. I've talked about this a few times. Uh, I'll throw a link into my conversation with Thomas Freeman about creating community organizations, and I'll throw in that P2P solutions thing so you can look at what some other people are doing. And I think those are the types of ways that we can start striking at that root of the, the monetary system. All right, our next question is a video submission from Eric. Greetings, James. As a student of literature and as a master investigative researcher, I feel like you're the perfect person to weigh in on an academic controversy I've been following of late. Having learned a little bit about the background of William Shakespeare, it's not at all surprising for me to believe that he wasn't the author of all of those works. But the question is, who was then? I would love to get your take on it, and particularly I'm interested in the theory about Edward de Vere, who I think is a much stronger candidate for potentially being the author of all those works. And I'm just curious what you think about all that. So thank you. Thank you for the question, Eric. Intriguing question for me, obviously. And in fact, in some ways, maybe this is the question the Corbett Report was purpose-built for. (laughs) It combines conspiracy and literature. (laughs) Yay! You would think this would be the only thing I ever talk about, or the main main theme of the website. Well, it, it really is up my alley, and it is fascinating to me. And I do have my own ideas about it. I don't think Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, but I don't... I don't 100% think it was only Edward de Vere. I think Oxford is... Perhaps one of the candidates, but I think there were multiple authors, and I think the Rosie Cross may have been involved. But there's a lot of info to go through there, so I am not promising, but I think I will do a Film Literature New World Order episode on that at some point in the future, because it is fascinating. And it's important. I mean, it's actually important, I think, because we here we are four centuries later, and still the, the phrases and the, the words and the, the language, the English language as we know it was really shaped and codified by Shakespeare. So who did that? And what did they implant in that language that has shaped the way, the way we think about the world? And that is an important thing. I talked about this in a previous conversation with uh, a name that's going to escape me completely, but we talked about linguistic imperialism. It is a real thing. It is important to understand, and I think Shakespeare is an important part of that, being the foundation of what we now think of as the English language, which became the imperial language of the world. So it is actually important for the, the, the things we talk about here in the Corbett Report, and fascinating to me. So 
I'm sure I'll cover it at some point. I've been thinking about it for years, but I just have never sat down and put it together. So there's something to do there, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I don't know if anyone else is. Yeah, you you uh, when I first arrived here, you regaled me with the history of the uh, the phrase "okay." Yeah, I did actually. <laughs> so the, uh, the literary fun never stops at the Corbett Report. No. No. <laughs> um, all right, let's let's take our final QFC for this episode. Coming in from Lionel. Um, with all the talk of negative interest rates, etc., something tells me that things are not so bad in Japan. Would you be able to shed some light on what the on what the real economy is like instead of what the Nikkei is doing? Of course, Japan's debt to GDP ratio is very high, but something tells me that life goes on and food is purchased and cars are driven, with life being very normal, etc., etc. But maybe you have some man on the street on the street with info that will tell me that life is horrible in Japan. Do uh, do we have? Some man on the street who could give some insight into this. Brock, you've been here in Japan four times in five years. As you've been here for a few days now, what do you see? What do you think? Um, well, obviously the, I mean, yeah, it, it, it was well pointed out by Lino there that the the GDP to debt ratio is very concerning for Japan, um, and it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out as the Asia Pacific continues to heat up and become the. I think the premier, one of the premier powder kegs globally. Um, but for me, for, for a day-to-day thing, compared to the only other, only other place I've ever been to and where I'm from, Australia, it's um, things are generally more affordable. Um, there is this public myth or perception that things are really expensive here. And, of course, if, if you want to, you can make Japan as expensive as any other country or more so. But for me, for, for the average person... Um, it's it's really it's really nothing nothing stands out um, things things that are comparable fruit and vegetables and um, pet and uh, gasoline or petrol um, are, are generally comparable. I will say for this for this trip in 2016, the only major difference I've noticed is that the the exchange rates were quite were quite different. The, I, I believe the, fir- the first time I came here, they were about even 100 yen to every dollar, right. and now it's about 79 cents to every hundred yen or something like that. So, um, yeah. Uh, you know, once it, I don't think it's trickled down so so much yet, but it's not. There is another thing to point out. I think is that there is definitely a, a level of Jap- of poverty here in Japan. It's a different kind of poverty, but yeah, um, I, I would say yeah, things aren't. You're definitely going to get more more information from listening to people who actually live here than than I'd say that you know, yeah. than yeah. the. The Nikkei, or right, right, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. I, again, it's like it's like in the states, the Dow is not the be all and end all. It doesn't. Mm. That's it, they just want you to think that's what the economy is. Mm. So yeah, I, I wouldn't look at the Nikkei if you want to know what's going on in the Japanese economy. Having lived here twelve years now, I would say that uh, I haven't seen a huge difference since I arrived and since now. But there is definitely, I think, a harder um, job situation, and it's, it's a trend. I mean, it's a trend that's been going on for decades, and I've seen over the last decade is <clears throat> a, a steady chipping away at real income, real wages. Um, and it, we've seen that certainly for the last couple of years, every single month a decline. Maybe there was one or two months where it went up. But the real wages keep dropping and dropping. Belts tighten just a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Again, it's not catastrophic. Life does go on here. There, and there isn't widespread poverty or you know hundreds of homeless all over the streets or anything. It's not like that. There is a much less... Um, income disparity between the top and the bottom here in Japan, and so everyone gets compressed into there. And <clears throat> Japanese society maintains along that level. I think it will get worse and worse. I think it is absolutely trending downwards, but we're still not at 
catastrophic collapse type uh, levels yet. And and Japanese are traditionally huge savers, you know, tons of money stashed away, you know, under the mattress kind of thing. So so it's going to take a while, I think, for that to come to home. And surprisingly enough, Japan is a net creditor, not a net debtor nation. Um, and so when and if things start collapsing in Japan, it's actually going to affect the nations that it's uh, 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 crediting to more so than it's going to affect Japan at first, I think. But Japan might be the catalyst for that. So it's an interesting place. But yeah, no, it, basically, it's not it's not bloodshed on the streets or you no, know, Mad I, Max or anything. No, I, I also think another variable to throw into that mix would be the, the work ethic of the Japanese as well. That's you know, that is something that could be is very, very malleable. I think, you know, it, most Japanese are already working 50 plus 60 hours a week. Yeah. Another five, if you know, t- to keep themselves yeah. afloat is not really a big deal. Whereas in other countries, that would be, you know, Australia, the average working week is 38. Right. But to, to say, you know, yeah, I, I, I think that's definitely something that's going to, right. that needs to be considered as well. That um, Well, there's a lot to say about that in terms of the corporate mentality here and yeah, that has yeah. existed for generations that has been a cradle to grave kind of system where you go to you go to school you go to university after university you get a job with a corporation you work with it all your life and then you retire on a pension that is broken down but japanese society is still trying to find how to orient itself so obviously part-time and contract work has become a lot more common yeah so yeah it's a long-term big problem but it's not mad max on the streets so don't believe just don't just look at the the Dow or the Nikkei or the whatever the FTSE or whatever to look for the economic conditions of a country or region. It's much more broad than that. Um, but yeah, it's definitely not a happy economic situation. But that leads into the question. Uh, well, first of all, about Japan and Japanese society, the Japanese economy, which you and I just talked about. We did just we did just talk about that actually, and on the upcoming subscriber video. Yes. So this weekend's subscriber newsletter has a video where we talk about uh, well things about Japan, not just the economy, but all sorts of stuff. So if you're interested in that, um, you can check out the subscriber newsletter video. Uh, finally, any, any, you're here, you're in the flesh and blood, you're, you're actually in the same room. Do you have a question for Corbett? Uh, witty, funny, whimsy. Anyway. <laughs> uh, where's a good place to uh, have cyber doodles? <laughs> <laughs> You're going to ask a question that I can't answer because it's been years since I've really frequented the soba bars here. I love soba, but I don't go out for it very much anymore. So, uh, Well, I think there's only one answer to that. We'll have to find one. Yes. All right. All okay. Right. Okay. Well, I think that's going to do it for this month. Once again, uh, the best ways to get your questions in, of course, if you're a member, please leave them in the comment section of this QFC. Uh, you can use the contact form, SpeakPipe, Twitter, uh, YouTube, Vimeo, whatever. Once again, any way you get the questions in, I'm happy to answer them. Brock won't be here next time, but uh, he will be behind the scenes editing the video. So once again, thank you to Brock for all of the incredible work he does. And please do send him some of the love because he does deserve it for the great video editing that he does. Oh, thanks, mate. Thank and <laughs> thanks to all of you for, again, making this possible and uh, for your excellent questions. Talk to you again next month. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's International Forecaster Editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com slash support.